Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Seek Go Create podcast. This is your host, Tim Winders. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. We appreciate you listening, commenting, rating, and sharing as you have been doing. I am just continued. I continue to be overwhelmed just by the response we've been getting to the podcast. It kind of started as just this experiment. I was trying to be obedient to just start sharing information, and I am just so energized and encouraged by all that I've been hearing. I also want to say that we're now interviewing guests. I've got someone I'm so excited to talk to today, and I I have been getting to the point where when I wake up in the morning and I get to interview someone like we do today, I'm just almost giddy and excited, and that is so cool, so cool. Today, I have Annie Purdue Olson, and she's someone that I was connected with not too long ago, and and we had a call, and I felt like we just hit it off. She might say something different. We'll find out about that in just a moment, but let me give the bio, and then I'm going to have her tell us what she really does. So here's, here's what her bio says. Annie guides ministry leaders, churches, and nonprofit organizations through the people challenges that sidetrack ministry. That says a lot right there. With over 17 years of experience in nonprofit management and pastoral ministry, she shows leaders the way through the process of equipping people to work better together. Hello, Annie. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited. Like I said, I just, I, I wake up in the morning and I'm so excited and I'm just excited to talk to you. Excited to, as I've been saying with these interviews, talk to cool people, have great conversation with the microphone on so our podcast listeners can just listen in. It's just so much fun. But before we get too much farther, I gave your bio, but in your own words, give us your pitch. What what do you do? <laughs> you know I am. I always see, I had a client actually after a session just a couple weeks ago, um, come out of that session and she goes, we started our time today without hope. I didn't feel like I had any hope. Mm-hmm. And now at the end of my session and at the end of our time together, she was like, I have hope. I have possibilities. I have options. I have something that I can try and that, that I can do that I feel like will work. And so I feel like a lot of my job is actually taking ministry leaders out of the trenches of their day-to-day when they're faced with a lack of resources and maybe people issues that they don't know how to solve or don't know how to address in a workload that is way too overwhelming. And they come meet with me and we jump out of the weeds and create a strategy that helps them move forward. Wow. You love doing that, don't you? I do. I say people, people pay me the big bucks to create white space in their life so they can breathe. Ah, oh, so now, that, now finally, after a few minutes, we get to what you really do. No, yeah. man, I, I, I love that giving hope because, you know, in the world we're in today, regardless of what people are in, even in, in ministry, and I, I mean, I interact with people in ministry, they need it, don't they? Yeah, they really do. Yeah, because they're on the front lines in a lot of the battles that are going on. So, well, very exciting. There's a term that you also use in describing yourself, or at least on your website, called leadership strategist. And I love both of those words. Tell me more about that. (laughs) Well, you know, common language, leadership development, consultant, that kind of stuff. And it's so much more than development. Uh, And I will help leaders get their development on if they need to. Um, But I really love that space where I can pull leaders out of the trenches and say, let's strategize together. I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything that there is to know about leadership, but they don't either. But when we get together with the goal of strategizing, we can make an impact. Ah, Cool. So you work with them. Yeah. and, And some other words that I see described, teacher, coach, facilitator. I, I love all of those words. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, but I, but I have to ask this, you know, cause, cause I, I, I do think that you and I kind of do similar things, which I think is cool, which is kind of probably why we hit it off. But in many ways, like you just said, and I think you said it very well, you don't have the answers. I, I go to your website and we're going to give people links so they can connect with you and things like that. People I think might be led to after we have this conversation, but in many ways, 
can you really define what the engagement is going to look like up front? Mm -mm. <laughs> nope. I think really it comes down to co-creating the solutions together and co-creating the process together. I certainly have a framework. I'm not going to leave you out there uh, without any sort of guidance. That's my job is to be a guide. Um, mm -hmm. But the process and the solutions are really co-created. Some would even say try created because we're going to invite the Holy Spirit into the process. It's not just going to be me and my client, but it's going to be the Holy Spirit speaking into that process to help us create what's needed in that situation. Yeah, that's excellent. Very cool. All right. Well, what what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to go into some of those techniques and skills. I, I, I really want to pick your brain as far as leadership and communications because you've written some on that. And I know that's near and dear to your heart. So we're going to talk about that later in the in this episode. But right now, I think I would just love to learn more about your background, where you're from, how you've kind of arrived at this place. So kind of kind of go backwards for me. You know, where were you? Where were you born? Where were you raised? And what kind of influences did that have on your life? And uh, just share that with us. Yeah. You know what? I was born and raised in small town, Southern Wisconsin. And uh, I love, I have a big family. I love my family. All my family still lives in Southern Wisconsin. I'm the only one that turned out to be a city girl over 30 years ago and have stayed a city girl ever since. <laughs> I moved up to the Twin Cities in Minnesota to go to school and I love it here. Um, I love going home to visit my small town family and my small town experience, but this is I love the city, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be a city girl now. <laughs> so, what? I, when did you move to the big city? Did you just like get out of high school, pack up, and move, or was there a process there? No, pretty much about a year lag in between being done with high school and heading off to college. But yeah, I came up here to go to college, assuming that I would move into ministry. That was kind of my goal and what I wanted to do. Um, you know, when in my early twenties when I was younger, so went to school to do ministry and then ended up not doing ministry for a while, for quite a while, actually. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. So, but before we get off the small town in Southern Wisconsin, I, something that I, maybe it's the age I'm becoming not old. I'm becoming mature. That's the word I like to use. I like that um, one. I'm beginning to f reflect more on, you know, where I was raised and the things that, may have been positive about it and maybe some things that I need to overcome because of oh. <clears throat> where I was raised. What are some of those things about where you grew up? You mentioned family and things like that, but what are some things that you took away as positives and then maybe some things that you've had to work through because of where you grew up? Ooh, that's really a good question. I definitely feel like now uh, when I go home, some of the things that I gained from that experience of being in that small town is everything seems to slow down there a little bit. The yeah. pace just slows way down and um, people are more calm and casual than my day-to-day -day experience up here in the cities. And part of that might just be getting out of my normal day-to-day -day routine, but it just seems like everything there is at least six months behind what's happening up here in the cities and everything seems to just be at a bit of a slower pace. I really appreciate that. Um, wow. It's a nice balance to my to my experience, and even as I think back to my childhood, I would say things were a little bit more from a more relaxed and slower paced. I think one of the challenges of small town living is everybody knows everybody, and the relationship dynamics are you know kind of like a small organization, <laughs> and uh, so you know the gossip train and uh, just some of the relationship dynamics and who knows who can oftentimes be a little bit awkward. So I actually appreciate just being able to go home and visit and then get out of that. Yeah. Um, but I know that that's some of the challenges of small town living. But in some ways, that's informed the way that I do what I do when I help people solve their people problems, because it's, it's a small town, it's a small organization, it's, you know, people are real and have their challenges and interact in uh, common ways, no matter where they're at and where they're coming from. Yeah, I love what you said about just the pace. Um, you know, we we grew up in around the Atlanta area. And, you know, something about just getting in the car, spending 45 minutes in rush hour, which I don't know why they call it that, but, you know, <laughs> sitting and then doing it again. And there's always this. I actually notice now as we travel and we, we operate at a different pace that 
that things just kind of slow down for me. Mm-hmm. When, of course, I live in an RV, so that's kind of an odd thing too. But when I get in and around a city, it's just kind of like I can almost watch my blood beginning to, you know, pulse a little bit faster and things like that. So it's good that you've got both perspectives, I think. Yeah. I think it helps me because I can grab some of it from home and bring it back up with me. And some of those practices that I see my family engaging in and the people around me and grab that um, and like integrate it into my own life just a little bit. I can be a little bit of a workaholic. I mean, I've had those tendencies in my life. So um, I think sometimes grabbing those lessons from my childhood, from my past, from my home helps me to remember that there's more to life than work. Right. So, so you, you left small town, Wisconsin, went to the big city and became a leadership strategist, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> now, now let's start talking that. No. So, so, I mean, did you start going into the work world? I know that you pastored for a, for a season, for a period of time. When did that happen? And yeah, well, straight out of college, I actually went and worked, um, in mental health clinics. So I did business management and mental health clinics for about three different clinics. Um, and I really learned a lot. Um, I think that working with therapists is a lot like working with pastors. So I think it prepared me a lot for some of the ministry experiences that I had that were yet to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did that for a number of years and actually was, uh, worked for also a couple of different churches more in support roles. So I had two different churches that I worked in in support roles. So that was kind of that piece. And then I had been going to a church here in the Twin Cities for about a year and a half when they kind of started coming after me and saying, would you be willing to work for us? Um, and uh, it was like, how could I refuse the church that had my heart, you know? So I uh, sure. started working for them. And uh, I did that for like 13 years, I think. I was in pastoral ministry there in a couple of different roles. So when I started working for the church, they had five employees. They were setting up and tearing down every week at a high school. Mm-hmm. And it was crazy. It was just crazy. And uh, when I uh, left, there was 60 employees and we had our own building three services a weekend. Wow. In that Tri-Cities area there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But before, there was something that you mentioned about mental health, though. You know, many would say that that's, I mean, obviously, this was a few years ago. I won't date you or age you or anything like that. It was a few years ago you were involved with specifically mental health. Many would say that's one of the primary issues that we're facing in our culture today at a time when we live with more abundance, more connection, digitally primarily, but more connection, more stuff. I mean, do you observe that? Is it something that's still in your DNA in that mental health area, having dealt well, with it? Well, my undergrad is actually in psychology. That's an, ended up being what I, I did. My first degree was in, psych, in psychology. And so I have an interest in this area, but I like coaching and I feel like God wired me to be a coach more than a therapist um, because I'm just a little bit more like action oriented and problem solving and strategy oriented. Um, And, but I do still appreciate and have a significant appreciation for the whole field of counseling and how important it is. Um, I do a mentoring of quite a bit of mentoring of some young adults in their early twenties. And I am concerned about the wave of anxiety that has overwhelmed um, this generation that is now in their in their high school and college age um, phase of life. And I think we're seeing a real strong uptake in that. And I would say, imagine that social media has a significant contribution to that. Sure. Back when I was working in, in mental health, there wasn't much of those kinds of like social media influences. I mean, we barely had the internet. So now I'll date myself. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you couldn't even so, spell the internet back then. I couldn't. Yeah, I know. It was like www. Nobody said that. They all said the World Wide Web. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we have a certain number of our listeners that just turned off the podcast with you and I having that. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, these people, they're... <laughs> They're too old. Keep listening. Uh, We've got some wisdom for you. Keep listening. Yeah. But I would say, I mean, what I worked with most, actually, the clinics that I worked for actually specialized in grief counseling. So they did a lot of work around families who are experiencing loss, spouse, children, um, parents. And uh, I think that was a really neat experience for me to watch 
uh, these therapists take these families through what was a really intense journey in their life. Mm. Um, and using techniques that were really fun to see, they used therapy dogs with kids. Um, mm. So it was just really fun to, I don't know, just be a part of that and moving, giving, getting an understanding of grief from that perspective and from their perspective, I think was a really uh, helpful piece for me a lot in my journey. Yeah, that's, that's good. You mentioned one thing about you, that you're doing some mentoring with, with some teens and some young adults. Any other trends or things? I think it's so easy for people in, I'll say, my age group to be critical of a younger generation. I think that's always been the case. Mm -hmm. And then I'll almost say, why don't they work harder? Why don't they do things? But then I don't know that we understand the anxiety that goes with the always connected world that we live in. I mean, I think back, I grew up in the 70s and it was kind of like the end of the age of innocence in my mm -hmm. opinion. But anything else you're noticing because I think all of this fits together with the bigger piece that ministries are dealing with, businesses, everyone. So what can you share about just some things you're observing? I, I am observing the pressure to perform as a pretty significant weight um, on kids that are in school, you know, the pressure to apply for college and know what you're supposed to do with your life and what your purpose is in life and what your calling is in life by the time you're 18. I mean, how many of us actually really knew that when we were 18 years old? I'm 55 and I don't know it. I don't, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh-huh. So I think that pressure to perform in school, the pressure to um, perform in activities or sports or um, all of the different things that we seem to put a lot of pressure on folks to deal with. And, you know, even in terms of like YouTubers and the influencers and what they demonstrate and what they show that they can do and the feeling that we all need to measure up to that or that we need to compete with that or that we need to be that good. And, and so I think that that pressure to perform is a significant challenge that our young people really have to address as they go forward in life. You know, one thing related to that, this just came across my mind. So you can say, no, Tim, I'm not sure that I agree with that, but I also believe there is a, an attempt to not make mistakes. It's perform, but not, mess up, hmm. which are, they're related. I think they're cousins, but I've noticed this as I have dealt with younger, I guess the younger generation, I think they were brought up in such a way. I mean, man, I screwed up a lot when I was a kid, but it wasn't online. There's no record of it. So people don't know about it. Hmm. I couldn't go viral. It was like my neighbors that lived next to me saw me wipe out on my bike, you know, scarred from head to toe. And then we forgot about it after a few days, but now it becomes permanent. I mean, do you think there's something to that or, or am I off base? I don't think you're off base there at all. I mean, as, as you were talking about that, I just heard that like they, they have to combine performance with perfection because they're essentially always on camera. I mean, that, when back when I was in college, we used to talk about ministry being life in a fishbowl, you know, because when you're in ministry, you're standing up there and everybody's looking at you um, as a leader in ministry. But I think that what we're seeing is, is that that whole like life in a fishbowl idea is actually just like being expanded to so many people in so many contexts. Um, and we're not ready for that life in a fishbowl. We're not ready for life on camera. Yeah, I know. And, and so I, I, that's very interesting. I, I, one other thing, too, you'll kind of get a kick out of this. We, we actually took a client years ago, this was back in the late 90s, from a referral from a psychiatrist. The business owner was going through therapy, and the psychiatrist said, you need a business coach, which is what we were doing. That's what I do. And after about a year, year and a half, both myself and my partner at the time, we both agreed, we came to an agreement that we were not going to take any more referrals from psychiatrists. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I guess, you know, coaching is related to therapy, but they're different. So I, I will leave that with people like you that are professionals that can handle that. <laughs> Yeah, I think it is super important to distinguish the difference between therapy and coaching. I am not a therapist and I don't believe that's what God's called me to do, but it has a super important role to play 
on the journey that people need to go through to be successful in ministry, to be successful in business, to be successful at whatever God has for them. It has a role to play. Sure. I had someone recently that when I was mentioning to them, I'm a coach, they go, so you're kind of like a therapist. And I, I said, no, but I didn't, I wasn't able to contrast it. Can you contrast, can you put the contrast in words for me and help out yeah. or for everybody listening to? Yeah. How I like to look at it as a therapist is really about healing um, and wholeness. And so they take a look at the different experiences in your life that have led you to come to where you are today. And maybe it's a belief system or it's an emotional reaction or hot spots in your life that you actually need to work through before you can go forward in areas in your life that God might have you have for you. Coaching takes you from where you are today and says, it's goal focused. Where do you want to go? I'm going to help map that out for you. I'm going to help you map that out. I'm going to help you figure out what you need to be able to move forward. So it's always future focused. It's always goal oriented. Mm -hmm. And so it's not necessarily digging into the past we do, it's not that we don't ever look at the past because the past can inform the decisions that we need to make going forward in the future, mm. but it's a purposeful looking at the past so that it can inform where you want to go. Ah, that's good. Very good. So, all right. Well, I want to, there's a kind of an issue that's out in the world, especially in Christian and believer circles about about women in ministry and and you mentioned earlier and I don't want to just keep moving forward but you mentioned that you were a pastor you're in ministry you're obviously in a leadership role I don't, I'm not sure what that was maybe you can share that with us but um, not to get super duper controversial here but obviously you believe that women have a place in the world of ministry talk to us a little bit about that <laughs> You know, uh, I have been. I agree, with, I agree with you, by the way. So, but just okay. talk to us about that. Yeah. And uh, I, I, you know what? I grew up in a church and, and a family where women in ministry was honored and celebrated and encouraged. Um, and then I have uh, been a part of church families that have done the same. So, I don't have a lot of experience actually having to be in situations where I've had to debate this issue. But I have preached from the pulpit, and I know that there are scriptures in uh, the New Testament, especially in the Pauline epistles, in regards to women not being in a role of teaching over men. Um, and so I, I don't, I don't, I am not well versed in the debate of it. But one of the things that I do know is, is that in the New Testament, women were not educated like men. So how could someone who is not educated offer? teaching. Now they can offer a whole lot, but they might not be able to teach in areas that that man has already been taught in. And so I think we live in a society where women are, are have accessible um, resources for education and learning just as men do. And so I, I mean that it just seems to me that the debate has to be separated from such a, some of the cultural dynamics that were in play when Paul, Paul wrote those verses. Yeah, I, I just think there was a culture at that time that we don't live in that culture. So there was a teaching that had to occur. And yep. anyway, I, I'm, I'm all for it. And, and men that are wise will admit that women are smarter than them. That's just, <laughs> that's just the way it should be. So, so anyway, well, I, I appreciate the way you've served in that area. So now uh, we, I think we can't, we're going to get to leadership and communication shortly, but I think there's a part of your story that when you kind of shared with you, I, I, I think it's going to be important for people to kind of know some things that happened to you during that role. And, and I mean, to kind of go straight to it, you were actually widowed at the age of 32, if my notes are correct here. So yep. what can you share about that? I mean, this part of what we want to do with this podcast is to let people see who we are and how we've become who we are. So what can you share with us about that? Yeah. Well, my husband's name was Kevin and he passed away uh, at when I was 32 and that would have been in 2001. So we're headed on to 18 years here this December. Wow. And um, he, uh, I always talk about him as the one who like believed in me more than anybody else in my whole life. Um, he believed in 
who I was and what I could become. He was the one who actually made it possible for me to do ministry, I think. Um, so we were married the whole time I was in ministry. And um, I would say he got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, one month after we had bought our first home. Uh. It was, uh, you know, we had just like, we had gotten to the place where we were, uh, we had just bought our first home. Uh, we had a son who was five years old, three years old at the time. Let me get that right. Three years old at the time. And we were like, we're going to have another girl. <laughs> we're going to have a baby girl. We wanted a girl. It wasn't like we want a baby. It was like, we want a baby girl. And uh, so we were just in the process of buying our house and, and expanding our family and really looking forward, hopeful to the future. He had just finished his uh, master's certificate in marriage and family therapy, and he had gotten a job as a marriage and family therapist. So uh, pastor, therapist, oh man, we were just like, we were certified premarital counselors together. So we got to do that together. Um, so there was ways that we were ministering together and ways that we were going to do life together. And so the future looked so positive and so hopeful and so exciting. And one month later, he found a lump on his neck and then went to the doctor to just have it checked out, hoping that it was just an infection and it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So um, we went through 18 months of treatment. So he went through like a um, stem cell transplant, which is like this like major like procedure where they basically just kill every blood cell in your body. They wipe you out with so much chemotherapy that you have a zero immune system at that point. So we had three months where we were pretty much isolated in our home. We couldn't have people expo him exposed to people and people exposed to him. So we had to send my son down to my parents for the worst part of it um, mm -hmm. in southern Wisconsin because we couldn't have kids near us and any chances towards. So it was really isolating. And for me, being an extrovert, people person, it was it was like being in prison to be there and to like the the only. I mean, and my husband was sick most of that time, so he was sleeping or resting. So I took on jigsaw puzzles actually at that season of my life to be able to just like do something because I still have a little bit of those workaholic tendencies. I got to do something. I can't just sit around. So I did a bunch of jigsaw puzzles during that time. But it was he, by Christmas time of the first year, he had been through the, the stem cell transplant and by February. So only about two months later, the cancer came back in full force. And we did so many different kinds of treatments. And the Mayo Clinic is here in Minnesota. So we get to go down to Rochester. It's only about an hour and a half from us. They just know everything inside and out. So he even got a chance to be a part of an experimental study down there, which we hoped would be really effective. And the um, people in our church actually had given us a certificate to go to a bed and breakfast in Stillwater, which is like this quaint little town right on the edge of Minnesota and Wisconsin. And that night we, when we left to go, we, he, was in good, he was in good shape, thought he could do it. And by the middle of the night, he was not doing well starting to have trouble breathing. So we woke up in the morning and had to drive down to Rochester and fluid had filled up his lungs. And so they sent us back to the hospital here and they kicked us out of the study because it wasn't working and came back to the hospital. And it was, the doctors down at the Mayo say, said, you know, this is done, time for to go on hospice. It's time to be done with this journey. And we ended up coming to the hospital here in the, in the Twin Cities and we were walking into the hospital and one of my pastor friends, and who also happened to be Kevin's cousin, was coming out of the hospital after doing a visitation. Mm -hmm. And we ran into each other right then and there. And he prayed with Kevin in such a powerful way. It was like this God moment for us at our most moment of discouragement when everybody was telling us that there was no hope. Mm -hmm. God showed up with a hope agent in that moment to pray for us and say, you know what, here's your hope. And we're going to give you hope. And so we went into the hospital and got the treatments that he had done um, and found another treatment center that was willing to take him. And that treatment center gave him a treatment that in that, that he extended his life another three months. So he still passed away. But in those three months, except for the last three weeks, he was healthy and whole. One of the things that he loved to do was ride this little like 50cc motor scooter from our home to my office so that he could take me to lunch. And so there was many times in that little season of time in that three months where he hadn't been able to do that before. And he was able to get on that scooter and come to me and do lunch. But he, um, December 19th is the anniversary of his um, death. It was a um, hard day. It was a fast day. And I do think Kevin's wish was always that it wouldn't drag on and on and on. 
Um, and he woke up that morning at seven o'clock in the morning and just didn't feel quite right. Couldn't lift his head up. Something just wasn't working. We called 911, got him to the hospital and he went home to be with Jesus 715 that night. And uh, he's just like, I just don't want it to drag on and on and on. If Jesus wants to take me home, I want to go. I want to go fast. And we could look back on it beforehand and see the couple days before that he was ready to go. Yeah. You know, he just had been done fighting the battle and he was just really ready to go. All right. Wow. That's, thank you for sharing that. What, um, what, you know, you, you mentioned the faith on it and, and obviously you have, the ability to look back on things now, which hindsight is many times valuable for us, but, but you've used the word hope multiple times hmm. in this podcast. And I, I appreciate the use of that word, but what, what was your faith like during that time? What was, what was your relationship with the father during that time? And then, and then kind of what happened kind of beyond that, because there's obviously grieving and situations there that, you know, so sometimes we all cry out to God. Sometimes it's with anger. Sometimes it's, you know, with help. But what did that look like for you? You know, I um, have, I've often thought that someday I'm going to write a book about that experience and then experiences since then, and I think I would title the book if I were to write it, Living in the Tension. Because mm. I felt like that's what I was doing in those moments is living in the tension between faith and reality. There was the reality of going to the doctor and getting the doctor's reports and hearing the bad news and seeing the reality or the physical changes that were happening with my husband. And then there was this faith, this belief that God was bigger than the news that we were getting, that God is more than um, the, the bad report, that God is bigger than that. And there was amazing times of prayer. I, you know what? I can't even tell you how um, so many stories of how God rallied our whole church congregation around this whole um, situation. We had people praying for us. Um, this was back in the days when, um, you know, email was just becoming a really big thing. Not everybody had email, but a lot of people did. Um, and so I would send out email updates. Those emails were like forwarded out to thousands of people. Um, they ended up getting forwarded all across South America because we had some really good friends who were missionaries in South America. And it was just the, the, the faith that was built up as people saw the miracles. There was one moment when um, my husband couldn't walk. And he had a very special event that he wanted to be a part of for somebody that was really important to him. So we ordered up a wheelchair and we were going to get him there, but everybody started praying that he'd be able to walk. That Sunday morning, he stood up and he walked his way there. And we just saw so many miracles like that over and over and over again. And I don't, I, you know, people will ask me the question of why. And there are certainly days when I've asked the question, why did this happen? Um, and I think I can still live in the question of that. I don't know that I have the answer, but here's what I do know. I know God is bigger than any circumstance that we have in this world. I know that there will always be tension living in a fallen world in fallen ways that things like this kind of stuff happen. But God is good. And all the time, God is good. And I can anchor into that. And what he wants for us is healing. And what he wants for us is wholeness. And what he wants for us is for the redemptive story to unfold in our lives. And uh, so you hold on to that faith, knowing that the reality sometimes doesn't line up with that. And you live in that tension. Very good. And it was so cool while you were sharing that. I don't know. It's interesting in the background, I had all of a sudden someone with the blower show up here on the side, which I was going, man, this is such a good story. And I've got a blower blowing in my ear. But what happened afterwards? What, t tell us what happened next. You know, one of the things that I think was really important to me while Kevin was alive is, is that we never spent a lot of time thinking about or talking about what happens if he died. I think that was part of our commitment together is it was part of our stance of faith that we chose to uh, walk forward in during that season. I think it was also my choice to say, I am going to enjoy every moment that I have with my husband and I am not going to spend time and waste time thinking about what if he doesn't. 
It has not happened. And I, if it happens, then we'll deal with it. But I'm going to enjoy every moment I can with my husband while he's here. I don't think everybody needs to make that choice, but it was my choice. Um, and so when he, when he passed, I, I wasn't as prepared for it as I probably could have been. Um, and I don't regret my choice in any way, shape or form. But I think that in some ways, the rug was pulled out from under me in the sense of my future. So I still had a lot of hopes that Kevin and I would do ministry together. I had a lot of pictures or visions in my mind of what that would look like. And when he passed away, I didn't know what to do. And I was still pastoring at the time. And I had this amazing church staff and amazing church congregation that I can't even tell you how much they came around me. I mean, they sent people over to my house to clean. They did meals for us for three months. They, I had the men's ministry come over and like re-roof my shed and get the squirrels out of it for me. Um, I had a whole group from the church come over and resod my backyard. I mean, it's just like these people were just totally in my corner. They were there for me. I don't know what I would have done without them. Um, but I still didn't know who I was without Kevin. Uh, I didn't know what I was supposed to do without Kevin. And so there was a very bleak time where the future was dark. And I understood grief in a different way. Now, grief of losing Kevin was one thing. But the grief of losing my future was totally something I was unprepared to grieve. So, so fast forward. You know, now you're a leadership strategist. But there's there's probably some gaps in between that we're missing because that was – 18 years ago, I don't think you woke up and said, okay, now I'm going to be a leadership strategist. I'm not making light of the situation at all, but, no. but so, so how did you get your footing? So one of the things that I've noticed is that people in roles like yours, planners, strategists, things like that, or at least this is the case for me is I have this um, fantasy, myth, whatever, that I can control things and I can control people around me. I can control outcomes. And I, I don't think God brings things on us. I don't think he puts pain, discomfort and all that. But I think when it occurs, he can use that. So from this obviously very challenging situation, very difficult situation, what happens to someone who's got who's wired with the strategy gene when all of a sudden they realize they can't control everything <laughs> you know i think there was a probably varying things that i went through of growth in that area because i totally get what you're talking about um and uh one the need to control or wanting to control things and um i think work was a way for me to do that and even ministry was a way for me to do that um, and being able to focus on what other people need versus what I need and it helped me to feel like I had more control because I didn't have control over my life. Maybe I could help control other people's lives. <laughs> um, and so I think focusing and going headlong into ministry was a big piece for me. So, and I started more in, uh, ministry in terms of like more administrative, um, pastoral human resources kinds of a role. And then I moved into this role, um, of being a connections pastor was my title. And so it was about helping people get connected to the church, get involved in ministry, knowing what their gifts and talents were and being able to use those for the kingdom. And um, I still retain the human resources stuff because I just love that kind of side of the work. And so I did really, I think part of it was just like even investing in other people made me feel like I had more control. I don't know that I've still fully been able to extract myself from that thinking um, in terms of really just like having a hard time with different needs to control the bad things that happen so that bad things won't happen. Um, I think, uh, you know, my, um, I'm, I'm married now again, and I was married three years after uh, Kevin died, about a year or so, year and a half after um, Kevin was when I started dating my now husband, Bernard. But here's where it gets all tricky. So we'll just like get into the tricky really fast right away. So Bernard, my now husband, is, my, um, is Kevin's younger brother. So I have known Bernard. I knew Bernard all the, the whole time I was married to Kevin. He knows um, he was there when the kids were born. You know, I mean, it's just like he's just been a part of their life for all their life. And uh, we, so awkward 
awkward to start dating your brother-in-law, right? It was just, that was just awkward. <laughs> so um, I think that there's part of like even losing, like I talk about um, Kevin is the one in my life who believed in me and who gave me confidence, um, who uh, saw in me what maybe I didn't see in myself. And Bernard is the one guy in my life who like put my confidence to work. And he was like the guy that said, okay, you got to do something with that. And uh, it was, so a year after I was, we were married, I went on and got my master's degree in organizational leadership. And uh, I had been in a place with ministry where I felt like I didn't have all the tools in my tool belt um, and needed a little bit more to be able to do something a little bit more. And it was Bernard that said, all right, you're going to do something with this girl. You can't just sit this confidence on a shelf. You got to take some action. And um, I just, he just does, he's just like a matter of fact, he's a mechanical engineer. So you know, he's just totally different. So like I was married to a therapist. Now I'm married to this mechanical engineer who sees everything as a machine that has levers and you just push the lever and then this happens. <laughs> but he understands systems and sequence and, and he's logical and he just doesn't have a lot of time a day for lack of confidence or emotions, you know? So um, it just definitely fueled my energy to do that. And so I think that God brought him in my life at a time when I really needed him in my life. But when we got to the point where our relationship got really serious, um, all of that control freakiness of like, I don't want something bad like this to happen to me again, it all broke loose. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a really hard place for me to, how do I work through this piece about, there's this person that I love that I feel like God has given me, but now I'm terrified that I'm gonna experience the same pain again. And how do I guard myself against that pain? And how do I make sure that that doesn't happen again? And I think I had to come to the conclusion um, before I said I do that I might go through that again hmm. and that that might be part of my story again and that there are no guarantees in life. And can I step into love? Can I step into this thing called marriage knowing that I could go through the same exact thing all over again? Hmm. So that, that really reemphasized you're not in control. <laughs> I am not in control. Okay, two quick things before we move off this. First of all, I would really, really love Bernard. I'm an industrial engineer, which is a hybrid of mechanical, and I get it. I get that totally. Um, but he was your, he was Kevin's brother. Yep. And was there any pushback? I mean, I don't want to get into ugly stuff, but I mean, like, you know, we're in a society where we kind of worry, most people worry about what other people think. Yep. And was that ever a factor there? And one other thing, gosh, I, I said I wasn't going to say this, but it sounds like a story from the Old Testament. It sounds <laughs> like some biblical story or something <laughs> like that. So was there any of that that went on? You know, I think that there was definitely a piece about Bernard felt responsible for me. He'd been single all of his life, so he wasn't married and he lived three blocks from us. So uh, me, a single mom in ministry and sometimes ministry hours aren't normal hours. I, those people who are in ministry know what I'm talking about. And um, Bernard being three blocks away was a, a source of support that I leaned on pretty heavily during that season of being a single parent. And uh, so we were friends and uh, we lived close. And there was this, I think there was a piece about this is my brother's wife and I'm going to make sure she's taken care of. Wow. Um, and so th that it wasn't like we didn't have any contact for a year and a half. What was really awkward is trying to have the conversation about like, do we have feelings for each other? That was what was really awkward. And when we engaged in that conversation and actually did get honest with each other about that, it was still another six months before we told our kids and told anyone outside of a few, few, few close friends that we were dating. The couple reasons that were really important. This guy was really important in my kid's life. And so I do not want anything to jeopardize that relationship. So we needed to explore what our relationship was going to be before we brought that out into the whole family dynamics. And uh, I think the other thing is, is that we did have some family dynamics that were a little awkward. Um, and so, I mean, we were quick to tell our like parents. Um, so we told them pretty early on in the process and my parents were a little concerned and rightly so that I might be looking for in Bernard, what I had lost in Kevin. 
and uh, that I, it was a rebound or, um, you know, coming back to, you know, not really thinking through what the relationship really is all about because I was just finding another Kevin. Um, and so we had to journey through that with our families and we had to journey through that question with ourselves and asking the question and making sure that that wasn't really in fact the case. Um, and so Bernard and I have been married for 15 years now, so I'm thinking we figured it out. 15 years, that's a, that's a long time in today's world as far as marriage goes. Thank you for sharing that, Annie. I, that, that, I, I believe that'll minister to some people that are listening in and just overcoming and going through challenges. What are, what are some things that you've pulled from those experiences that you're now able to apply in, let, let's just go and say in your business with leadership and communications and all of these other things that you are, you mm -hmm. can't just push that aside. It's part of who you are. What are some things that you bring into that when you sit down with clients and work with them? Hmm. I think it has instilled a whole lot more empathy for me in the coaching that I do. Um, not only around just leadership issues, but how life issues intersect with that. I did uh, probably well over a year ago, a survey of a, of a group of ministry leaders and asked them what their biggest challenges were in ministry. I was surprised that actually um, isolation came out as number one, feeling alone at the top. And number two was burnout and feeling like there's more to be done than what I can ever get done. And then number three was all the different kinds of people challenges that you have, conflict, performance, workplace issues. I had was convinced that workplace issues and people problems would be at the top of the list. Um, but seeing isolation and burnout at the top of the list totally triggered my empathy and shifted a little bit of the way that I do the coaching that I do, recognizing that a lot of these folks are really isolated and they don't have the support that they need to be able to do what they do. So who's pastoring the pastors? Um, I think there's a movement in ministry that has been uh, pushing a lot more mentoring of pastors. A lot of the church planting groups that are out there are making sure that that new church plants are connected with seasoned pastors. And I think that that's so important. I think some of the denominations that I working, are, I'm working with are really seeing that and actually formalizing mentorship programs for their pastors, because I think that that's so critical. Um, but I would say that having gone through what I went through has given me a whole lot more empathy to how like life circumstances really plays out for us in the way that we lead. And it actually can make it harder to deal with the people problems because we don't have capacity when we're grieving, when we're isolated, um, when we're burnt out, it actually sucks so much energy from us that we don't have capacity to deal with our people problems. So then what I see people doing is, is that they push the people problems off to the side because they don't have the energy and the capacity to do that. I can empathize with that. So instead of saying, you know what, you got some problems here that you're not dealing with and you need to deal with them. <laughs> Get going. Is as I can say, I can empathize with this place where they're at. And a lot of times in ministry, the ideal of what they expected in ministry is not what they experience. And so they live in that tension of what they hoped for and what the reality is, is being a tension. Just like I lived in the tension of faith and reality. I think we live in this tension way more often than we think in our life and leaders live in that tension. And so what I want to do is empathize and validate with the grief experience that comes from this ministry isn't what I thought it was going to be. Mm, that's good. That word tension is such a great word. You've used it a few times. Um, you know, I work with a lot of people in the business sector and it's so interesting that what you're saying, it, it's, <coughs> it's really not different. Oop, I heard the dog there. Awesome. <laughs> and, and so what you're saying is, is that they're not really that much different between ministry and business and and really what we see is that leadership can be a very lonely isolating um i think part of it could be pressure to perform burdensome i mean what we could pile on a lot of words here but having said all that your role is to step into that and to help with that so who's let's talk more about who you work with who are 
I guess we could sort of define an ideal client. Who would an ideal client be for you if you can define that? Because I know people are different, but what does that look like for you when you engage with, with clients? Well, I mean, my, my ideal client is probably uh, an executive director or pastor that's leading a team of five or more people. Um, so they're trying to get these folks to work together to accomplish a mission. And uh, I wor I've worked with also um, like business owners who can do the, who have a small team like that, who have a very strong sense of mission that they're trying to accomplish, but they're getting like talk, uh, they're getting tangled in the people issues and they're not able to actually accomplish mission. Um, I, so it, it, it can border anywhere from these people have strengths and I don't know how to tap into their strengths all the way to we have a toxic working relationship and we're trying to figure out how we can undo all the toxicity that's happening in the way that we relate to each other. And there's a huge spectrum in the middle of that of people who are struggling with all of these different challenges. Um, and so, but usually I'm working with team leaders um, that are managing other folks in their organizations. Good. And, and what are some of the ways that you do? I know on your site, you've got some different programs and things like that. What does it look like to get started? And then I'm going to ask you about communications because I can't finish up without getting your take on some communications. But, but what, does it look, what does get started mean to you? What does that look like? Yeah, my favorite way to get started is really to uh, do what I call my accelerated coaching. I want people to get a leadership strategist in their back pocket for the next six weeks to solve their most pressing problem. So I really work with leaders to assess what is that one thing that if you could just shift this one thing, it would have a ripple effect on your entire team. Let's mm -hmm. tackle that one thing. So before we even start, I'm going to help them pick out what that one thing is and discern what that is. And so I spend time figuring out what that one thing needs to be. And then we take the next six, six weeks and we tackle that one thing. I really believe that leaders don't have a lot of time to spend on, uh, you know, ramping up and doing like six weeks of like self-assessment and self-awareness in order to be able to actually start getting things done. Now that doesn't mean I won't use assessments because I will, I Myers-Briggs certified, I um, use StrengthsFinder, but I will use them along the way. We're going to figure out your problem. We're going to tackle your problem. And then we're going to bring in whatever resources we need to do it. Do they know what the problem is already sometimes? A lot of times what I see people do is coming to me with a litany of problems. <laughs> or should I say it this way? They come to me with a list of symptoms of all of the things that are going wrong. And so what my job is, and I think this is where this leadership strategist role really plays out, is to pick through all of the different symptoms that they're saying and get to the root of that and say, okay, so this is what we really need to address. All of these things that you're talking about are interconnected in some way. Let's find that connection and then let's deal with that connection because that's where the ripple effects will come from. If we can deal with this thing, it's going to solve this one and this one and this one and that one. Then we can go on to this one and deal that, with that. Right. So it's not one of these. I've, I've heard medical professionals now say that because of all the medicines and pharmaceuticals advertised on television, people show up with a self-diagnosis. <laughs> oh, Yes. And do people come to you and say, we just need more, if it's pastoral, we need more members, or I need, I need a better group of members, or we need more money. And sometimes that might be the case, but there's probably a root issue. You help find that, correct? Yep. And I do have people who come to me and say, oh, we have a real communication problem on their team. Will you just come in and do your communications training with them? And it's not that I won't say yes to that. I, I will oftentimes, it will give me a, a, um, a lay of the land. So I love to go in and do that because it will help me get a lay of the land and how the team is working and where some of their challenges are. But that is never going to solve the problem. A communications training will never solve the problem. I've got to be able to get one-on-one -on -one with that leader so that they can figure out how to create a different communication culture on their team. And that's what I help them do. I see. And so, because that sounds like just a training many times is a Band-Aid. And for me, on my end, training is an event whereas strategy coaching is more the process and I've just gotten to the place where I enjoy process more. It sounds like you're the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. more. No, not that. I mean, I love to get up in front of a crowd and talk to people. <laughs> really? <laughs> that's I'm... not where transformation is going to happen. 
Yes. Yes. It's it. My finding is that sometimes that feeds my ego more, which I have to be careful not to feed my ego. I need to have impact. And that's where I, I even use the word discipleship. Discipleship is spending time with people and constantly working with them. So you mentioned communications and there's a great article that you wrote on four communication styles. And I would love as we kind of wrap up here and we're, we're going a little long, but I want us to spend just a few minutes on this you talk about four communication styles that I think kind of peels away a little bit of the, the issues with communications and helps people understand. Can you talk about that for a few minutes? I don't know if you want to go into all four styles or at least hit it from a high level, whatever you would like to do. I'm going to let you just kind of teach us a little bit on these communication styles. That's great. I mean, communication is my um, most widely asked for requested training. And so I decided actually to do a blog series to expand on this, these four communication styles. And so I'm in the middle of it right now, but the four communication styles are based on the Myers-Briggs um, type indicator. So I base it on that. So I actually have a self-assessment that I have people go through that helps them to figure out what their communication style is. You won't, don't need to know Myers-Briggs. You don't need to know your numbers or your letters or anything else like that. Um, because uh, what I've done is actually just created these, this assessment that gets you to the four different styles. I've given them names because people remember names way better than letters. They just do. Um, and so the four communication styles are the problem solver. And now the problem solver is your get it done person. They do not like to spend a lot of time in meetings. They would much rather take action. They see the problem and they see everything as a problem. And they, and they figure out what needs to happen and how to analyze that in order to be able to take action. So problem solvers, when they're communicating, are always communicating in the language of problems and solutions. That's all they talk about and that's what you're gonna hear them speaking about. They'll bring in data to support the evidence for the problem. They'll bring in data and analysis in order to say this is the right solution that we need. Um, and their opposite is called the bridge builder. Now the bridge builder is their opposite because they don't see everything as problems, they see everything as people. And they wanna bring people together, they wanna to find common ground. So they will compromise on a solution to a problem in order to bring people together so that we can go forward together. It's all about moving forward together. When they're talking, they will often talk in language of like metaphors and analogies because they wanna create meaningful connections. They're trying to put a word picture behind the vision that they have for what they wanna accomplish. It is all about the people for them. And so they see everything as people instead of problems. And the strategic thinkers are communication style number three. And they are um, very problem focused, like the problem solver, but they love to be able to dive way deep and get to the root of the problem. And so they do prefer brief and concise communication and logical communication. Like if you're gonna talk to a strategic thinker, you wanna first come and give them the bottom line that says, here's what I'm thinking, or here's the decision that I've made. Now, here's all the evidence that supports that. Because if you wander, you are going to lose a strategic thinker so fast. They are very goal-focused, and they are focused on the future goal. They think five, ten years out, and they are focused on the goal and how to get to that goal. And they create a plan for how to get to that goal, and they think through that very strategically. Their opposite is the compassionate connector. Now, the compassionate connector is like the bridge builder is all about people but they are all, all about practical needs. Practical, feet on the ground, here's what needs to be done today. So you can see the difference between a strategic thinker and a compassionate connector. The strategic thinker is five years ahead, goal focused, and the compassionate connectors go, what does that mean for today? Who, who is that gonna benefit? And they see the needs and they gather resources to meet people's needs right in the here and now. They are common sense, feet on the ground communicators. And so they don't have the time of day for theories, concepts, or big dreams, out of the box thinking, no time of day for that. These four styles, when you put them on a team and put them in a room and you ask them to do a meeting, to solve problems, to set expectations for what needs to be done, they all four are going at it from a different angle. And so what I do when I'm working with leaders in, in, in the communication training is, is I'm teaching them how to speak a language that's different than their own. So if you're a bridge builder, how are you going to talk to that problem solver in a way that they're going to get it? If you're a strategic thinker, what are the ways that you can shift the way that you're communicating so that a compassionate connector will get on board with your goals? And so I do that in the training where I practice with them to help them do that. But when I'm coaching with them one-on-one, -on -one, 
We rely heavily on that kind of stuff to help us navigate the strategies that we need to develop to get their teams and functioning the way that they need them to function. Yeah, that's, that's valuable. And, you know, one thing you can see is hopefully people can see this. First of all, I appreciate the passion, the way you talk about it. You can kind of tell what makes people tick when they get to talking. I'm kind of glad. Thank you for doing that. But, um, what if you get, what if you had a room full of just one of these, what is that organization going to look like? That, that I love good. that you brought that up because I'm actually just today working on that blog <laughs> because just because we're alike doesn't mean it, that communication is going to be easy. Um, I think one of the challenges is like, well, you could put two problem solvers or have a whole team of problem solvers. Well, they all may decide that the problem is different and they all may come up with, a solution that's different and problem solvers generally feel like their solutions are right. So if you have four people that have different solutions and they all think it's right, you're going to have a challenge on your hand and you don't have a bridge builder in the room that's going to help you find common ground. You know, you get four strategic thinkers in a room and they're all going to be thinking five, 10 years out into the future. And what happens with a whole group of strategic thinkers is, is that they spend all of their time strategizing and they never get it done. So they come up with a solution for one problem and set a goal, and then they don't ever get to that goal before they're setting another goal. And so they don't have the compassionate connector that says, boots on the ground, what does this look like here? And so you get four bridge builders in a room and they will love on each other, but they will not get anything done. They will have wonderful ideas and they will spend all of their time ideating. And they have nobody there to call them on the carpet and say, okay, it's hit two o'clock. And we need to get out of here. What are we going to do? So you, you really actually need all of them to like nuance each other. But like bridge builders can share ideas and never come to agreement on which idea to take action on. Uh, strategic thinkers can circle around concepts and theories and stay there all day long. And, you know, never agree upon a theory and how they're going to move forward. And compassionate connectors are all about the people. And they will burn themselves out meeting the needs of people and then fighting over which needs are more important, you know? So it's just like this, just because we're the same doesn't mean there isn't challenges there. I know. I read something early today. I think it was in my early morning reading is that you can never learn things from people that are just like you. <laughs> yep. And it's kind of like you need all of this. So now you, you mentioned a link with an assessment. Is that on your website? Is that something that no, yeah. it's not. Well, it is in my blog series. So every blog on communication will have a link to the communication assessment. Okay, good. Um, so that, that might be something we can include in the show notes. Absolutely. The, I okay, could definitely cool. include that in the show notes for you. Good. We'll make, we'll make sure that we do that so that people can connect with you and we'll include your website and other places for people to be able to reach out to you. But we could keep talking. We have gone over by a few minutes what I my goal is, but that's a cool, that's a good thing. What's, what's next for you, Annie? What's, what's coming up? What are you excited about? What's coming up in the near future for you? <laughs> you know, I'm just headed into a, like a weekend away this weekend where I'm going to do some strategic planning and kind of sorting out what is God telling me and where I need to go next. And um, I definitely uh, see some things on the radar in terms of podcast and writing that I feel like I need to, um, ask the Lord about a little bit more about how to do that. And uh, I'm actually getting some really strong advice from folks in my life that I need to take this communications material and turn it into an ebook. So I think an ebook is in the future. Um, I think an online communication assessment and ramping that up is in the future. I think maybe a podcast is in the future. Um, so we'll see uh, what doors open with some of that stuff. And I am always, always, always about building more relationships with pastors and ministry leaders. And so I am always strategically thinking about how can I serve and how can I gift pastors the things that they need? You know, that white space that just gives them the space to think. And so that's definitely in the future for me. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Annie. One of the things I like to ask guest as we wrap up. The title of this podcast has a lot of meaning to me for reasons that I'll go into at some point, but Seek, Go, Create is the name of this podcast. There's three words there. Which one, if any of those words jumps out to you and why? Just as we wrap up, I'm going to let you share that. Hopefully one of them does. 
<laughs> well, you're asking me to pick one. Yeah, um, pick one. I'm going to make you pick one and tell us why. The first um, go kit stands out to me for sure. Um, I mean, I am a go kind of a person and I believe that um, if the car is not in motion, then you uh, can't steer it. So let's get moving and then we can see where we go from there. And then get people going with you too, right? I bet yeah. you're good at that. So. Oh, yeah. Annie, it's been such a joy talking to you. Thank you so much. Yes. I can see with some of the projects coming up from you that we may circle back around in the future and reconnect. And uh, I'm actually excited to hear about a possible podcast and other things like that. So <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. We'll include information to contact you in our show notes. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this. This has been so much fun for me. And as I say, my goal with this is just talk to cool people have a great conversation and turn the microphone. And I believe we've done that and had a great time with it. So until next time, thank you for listening in to the Seek, Go, Create podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Seek, Go, Create podcast, a part of the SGC network. For those looking for excellence, moving towards success and creating something new. We are constantly discussing bold new topics and ideas here on the network. So be sure to subscribe to be notified when we post new episodes. We look forward to sharing more with you next time, but until then, enjoy the journey.